You're listening to In Other Words, talking to kids about stuff that matters. It's a podcast series that got its start as a workshop series that I hosted at UCC Longmont. The resources that were presented there were so wonderful that I wanted to make them available to more people. I'm Amelia Richardson-Dress. I am a pastor currently serving at UCC Longmont. I'm also a writer who has written frequently about parenting, education, and spirituality. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Erica Anderson. Erica is a licensed professional counselor in Carbondale, Colorado. She is a former colleague of mine. And I'm speaking with her today about preventing sex abuse. This is one of those topics that is so hard that we often avoid it. But one of the things that comes out of this conversation with Erica are that there are some pretty simple things that parents can do at home to help keep kids safe. And in our next episode, we'll take some time to talk about what that looks like in church communities. Erica, one of the pieces of advice that's often given to parents is to be sure that they are using appropriate and correct, anatomically correct, names for body parts. And the reason for that, I understand, is twofold. First, it reduces shame around our bodies, which makes it easier for kids to understand if they're being touched inappropriately. Uh, and less likely to be manipulated. It also makes reporting easier. So if kids have pet names for their body parts, little code names that only they and their family know, then it makes it harder for them to tell somebody that they're being touched inappropriately. And so what I'm wondering from you today is what happens if it's too late for that in your family? So, you know, you have pet names or Uh, polite names, and you're not using the anatomically correct names for body parts, how do you pick up that with an older child, maybe an 8, 9, 10, even 16-year-old? The important thing is to say, you know, there are some words that we haven't been using, and it's important to use these words. And, you know, I know we've called it your PP, or I know we've called it, you know, whatever those pet names are that we, but really the word for this is such and such, whatever part we're describing. And by talking about it and bringing it up and saying, gosh, you know what? And, and when they're eight years old or 10 years old, and we're bringing it up for the first time, it's okay to say, you know what? I'm a little uncomfortable with these words too right? Because then if you're talking about it and you say, gosh, you know, this is a funny thing. People don't talk about this. Then your child understands, then they can, then you're not having a mismatch between what you're saying and what they're feeling about what you're saying. Because if you march right in with this new vocabulary and you have this discomfort about it, but you pretend you don't, a child is going to get all kinds of mixed messages about, well, what what is this about? Did I do something wrong? What am I supposed to understand about? I really appreciate what you said there about acknowledging the discomfort around this conversation and making sure that what we're experiencing as parents, which is often a lot of awkwardness around these conversations, lines up with what the kid may be experiencing around these conversations, especially if we haven't been having them from day one. Okay, so assuming that we are using correct body part names at home, or we're adapting to using correct body part names at home. Can you give us some other guidelines for what conversations about sex need to happen with kids and roughly what age we start having some of those conversations? 
It really does depend upon the child, and boys are different than girls. They're less cued in socially than girls are. Doesn't mean they're dumb, they just, they're built differently. And so when conversations come up around sexuality, oftentimes because boys, you know, with girls, it's about relationship, it's all about, and it can be very frightening to girls when they figure out that technically what happened with sex, right? That seems really scary. For boys, their parts are on the outside. And so there is a consciousness about their bodies that is present right away without, and, and, it's, and it's a different kind of consciousness. And so as a parent of a boy, I would be open to and, you know, communicating about, about their body and how, and about how, you know, that child's body kind of works and, you know, and what, what his penis is for, right? But you okay. don't talk about sex at age three because they're not ready to hear about sex at age three. Right. And it's really sort of, uh, you know, it's an open-ended dialogue when you have a conversation with a child around sex. And I think if you know your child well, which most parents know their children. Mm-hmm. And so if you know your child well and you feel confident in that relationship, you know, kind of checking in and saying, you know, if if the conversation comes up, you know, and he, and they will ask, they're curious, they want to know. If they say, well, you know, I guess something like, you know, where where do babies really come from? You know, that stork story is kind of silly, right? Mm-hmm. And you can say, yes, the stork st- story is really silly. So let's say that you've done a great job of being body positive and talked to your kids about sexuality in a way that's healthy early in their lives. How do you handle it when other kids have a different amount of information? And of course, I'm thinking here of kind of that nightmare parent scenario where your kid goes to school and shares some information with other kiddos that maybe they weren't ready for, or the reverse happens. Maybe your child gets information that you weren't ready for them to have. One of the things that I am aware of, you know, in my children's school is that the parents, the other parents, it's up to them to make a determination of what they feel comfortable and when sharing about sex. And so I I have to have deep respect for other parents about how they would like to handle it, whether or not I believe in their philosophy or not, right? So if I, it, so mm-hmm. I always, whenever talking to my children, I always have said to them, you know, this is a conversation for you to have with us. It is not a conversation to have with your friends. And so if your friends are saying things about this stuff, they, if you know the answer, um, and and they clearly don't, you might direct them back to their parents and say, you know what, I had a conversation with my mom or my dad about this. And, you know, it's really, it's kind of a mom or dad conversation. It's sort of how you would handle like the tooth fairy conversation. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing. Hey, you know what, you might be a little enlightened in this area and your friend may not. And it's really, it's really up to their mom or dad to have this conversation with them. 
So I want to switch directions a little bit and talk about consent. And I want to ask you specifically about choice and empowerment. And the reason behind this question is that we're seeing a lot of advice being given to parents. In fact, I've given this advice to give their kids plenty of choices from an early age so that kids are empowered to have control over their own bodies. And we see that coming up around things as simple as food choices at dinner time and letting your kids decide what and how much you eat on the grounding that that teaches empowerment and even teaches consent. More directly linked, there's been a lot of articles and research lately around empowering your kids to say no to giving a hug, even to family members, if they don't feel like giving a hug. So there's not so much that old-fashioned pressure to be sure you give hugs to grandma when you go visit at Christmas time. We're encouraging kids now to have choices in what they do and how they do it. And in a lot of ways, that seems logical to me, but it also entails a lot of different things. And and there are times when parents need to make choices for kids. So, you know, we don't let Susie only eat cookies at dinner time. And I'm wondering if you can just help us unpack where these choices play in to helping kids understand their bodies and then make good choices about uh, relationships and sex later in life. Well, so we're talking about a lot of different things. We're talking about choice in yes. general. And, and I think that, you know, the only way children learn to make good choices is by getting to make choices. So what I would think about is regarding choice generally, is this a choice that this child could handle the consequences if there was consequences to that choice? So that being said, if a child is seven years old and doesn't want to wear a jacket to school and it's 20 degrees out, some parents might say, you know what? I'm going to let you feel what it feels like to go to school in 20 degree weather without a jacket. And, and that is the consequence that you're going to have. Now, the key is not to go rescue that child from that consequence, right? right? So what that would mean is they probably wouldn't be able to go out for recess because the teacher's not going to let a child out at, in 20 degree weather. And um, they're going to be cold going to school and they'll be cold coming home from school and they're not going to get to go outside and play. And so some parents might think that is a reasonable consequence. That is a great way to teach. And I'm not saying that you should do that or shouldn't do that. That is one way to look at choice and consequence. Now, when it comes to something like choices around, do I hug grandma? You know, do I have to hug grandma when she walks in the door? I think to look at this sort of relationally is really important. There's an expectation that we hug grandma, okay? However, if we don't know grandma, grandma lives in, you know, Idaho, and we only see her once every couple of years, and, um, and she's a stranger pretty much to us, right? Would I want to hug a stranger that I didn't know? Um, probably not. So the conversation, really, the, the, the right. uncomfortable conversation, obviously, is with grandma. And I think that the, the relational piece is, if I was a grandma, I would much rather have a genuine, sincere hug from a child than a forced hug. And so if I get to spend a week with my grandchild, 
over the course of a week, if I am connected and attuned to that child, safe and I'm fun, eventually that kid's going to want to hug me. So wouldn't you rather have a real hug? And you'll get one, I promise, because, you know, little Susie is very huggy, right? So you're going to get a hug, but let's not force it. And don't be offended. She just doesn't know you yet. I love keeping the relationship in mind. Well, and that's the thing is to preserve and to build the relationship instead of putting these, <laughs> you know, this is this is what you do when you when you meet someone. No, you don't meet everybody and give them a hug. That's a really helpful framework to think about how we are going to make those choices with our kids and also then how we talk to family members about those choices. You've given us such good information just overall. And I'm wondering if if there's a conversation that needs to be had more specifically with children about abuse so that they know what abuse um, is and who to talk to if it should happen to them? Or is that a topic that it's okay not to address directly, trusting that we have laid a solid foundation for them to be empowered and confident and trusting in us as adults? Well, I think what we do is we use it, we talk more broadly. It's not just about mm -hmm. sex. We talk more broadly about if you're not comfortable with something, right? Let's say your child, uh, you know, everybody in the, everybody in the class is having sleepovers over, every, yeah. every weekend. And your child really doesn't like sleeping outside of their own bed. Are you going to force your kid to go to a sleepover? No, <laughs> no. What we're going to do is we're going to talk to him about it and we're going to say, yeah, you know, we're going to, we're going to be attuned to how they're feeling. And we're going to say, Hey, you know what? If you, you don't have to have a sleepover ever. If you'd like to have a sleepover, you want to work on it, we can work on what are those feelings and what's getting in the way. But really, it's about choice, right? It's about giving them a choice. You know, I don't really like sleepovers, yeah. but I'd really love to hang out and watch a movie until eight o'clock. And then my mom's going to come okay. pick me up or my dad's going to come pick me up and I'm going to sleep in my own bed. Um, so, so they're differing, I mean, obviously different stages of development, different times. You know, there are general rules about, you know, what you expose your child to, right? And how to keep your child somewhat protected. So what you say is with a, with a small child, you say, you know what? Because, you know, I had a child who would love to run around naked pretty much 24-7. She just, you know, it was just... She, it was just naked with cow, cowgirl boots and that was it. And she was just, and it was years of, you know, wanting to just be in cowgirl boots. And when she was at preschool, she went to a really lovely little preschool, a home childcare. Mm -hmm. The rule was she had to at least keep her undies on. So that was a rule, right? She had to have her undies on and she was okay with that. And so my child walked around in, in childcare with her undies and, and cowgirl boots. Now, the childcare provider was very clear with me that <laughs> that was what she was going to do. And if I was not comfortable with that, she might require another layer of clothing. But but it was a very small right. space, and it was and it felt very safe to me, and she felt very safe, so it was it wasn't a problem. Typically, what I would say is you wanna you wanna cover up the parts of your body that are covered up typically in a swimsuit, and that's a really great guideline for young children. Oh, I wear, you know, I wear clothes that cover up my private right. parts and that's okay. And so 
Um, and there's nothing scary about that. It's just these are these parts are private, and we don't say because you're vulnerable to sexual predators, right? Right. We just say this is just the parts that we cover up. Do you see mommy and daddy going out with you know naked? No. So so the second part is this: we look at um, we look at where they are developmentally, and then we talk about because because there is a risk. And the children that are more vulnerable to the risk are the children that have no clue what's going on. So if a child is somewhat informed, not informed about, you know, all the horrors of sexual abuse, but informed that, you know, if it doesn't mm. feel right, if it doesn't feel comfortable to you, you don't have to do it and it's not okay. And that can extend to anything. It doesn't have to just be about their sexuality. It can be about anything. So we're not having to have these conversations in like a sit-down family meeting style gathering. Instead, we're creating a home environment that feels open and trusting. Yeah, and you know, with my, I, you know, I my daughter's nine now. And, you know, what I do is I ask her to just kind of check in. She has a feeling in her belly that doesn't feel right when some when she's when someone wants her to do something she doesn't want to do. So and that's you know, that's never been sexual for her, but but right. there's a feeling in her belly like, you know, I really didn't want to go on that ski run. It didn't feel safe to me. Yeah, I felt that in my belly. Okay. So when you felt that feeling in your belly, did you go the other way? Yeah, mom, I did. I didn't want to go on that trail. Great. And then you just encourage them. I'm so glad you didn't do something that you didn't feel comfortable doing. Now, you talked earlier yeah. about how, um, you know, true sexual predators are pretty crafty. They're pretty good at, at digging into those, um, those places that are very vulnerable. So, you know, the, the key is to have this open dialogue so that if somebody does start to try to get in there, try to groom your child, they're, you know, Joey from down the street, I, there's no Joey, just believe me, but, <laughs> you know, some teenager or some, you know, or some, you know, some man down the street, you know, wanted me to, you know, he has a new puppy and he, and he wanted me to come into his house. Well, there's a great conversation for that before it ever happens. Yeah. yeah. And that is, Hey, puppies are cute, yeah. but, but we don't go into strangers houses. And that's, that's just good sense. You know, if you don't know somebody, you don't go with them and grownups never need help from a child. Never. Grown-ups don't need help oh. from a child to bring groceries in their house or to find right. their puppy. But if they're having an open dialogue with you all the time, and if there is no stigma about their bodies, then a conversation where somebody seems off, they're going to know it. And they're going to say, hey, mom, or hey, dad, you mm. know, this man wanted to talk to me. And I didn't, that felt weird to me. Right. Right. And then you say, okay, we're going to, you know, good job coming and talking to me about that. That's really helpful because, uh, you know, you know how it is as a parent. We're always trying to figure out how much information we need to give our kids to make sure that they are safe, but not so much information that either the all the possible tragedies of the world become exaggerated and they're afraid of everything. You know, there was a, my daughter when she, I have a, an 18 year old, but when she was, I believe 14, we went to the mall in Denver, one of the malls in Denver. And she, she and her friend, we were down in Denver getting um, ballet shoes. And 
we went to the mall and you know i believe at the i i think it's okay for two 14 year olds to go together to go you know check out the mall go looking at stuff and so i allowed her to go do that with her friend and then we met up I don't know, a half an hour, hour later. And and they said, this really weird thing just happened. And I said, well, what was that? And they said, this man came up to us and he said he wanted to take our pictures. And he said we were beautiful. And he said we could just go into this, you know, movie theater with him. And and I said, and of course I panicked. And, and it was very cute because both of them were like, creeper alert, why... We don't know this guy. How are what like we're really going to let him take our picture? And I said exactly, right? So that came from years of conversation around if you don't know somebody, you know, they might say all kinds of nice things to you like you're beautiful and and you know, you could be a model and all those things. But a 14-year-old that has some real understanding of of themselves and their value and and what's okay and what isn't is going to say uh no. I'm not going to go with you to get my picture taken. And they actually reported it to a, uh, you know, a, a, a police officer that was in the mall or, you know, a security guard. But that's that's uh -huh. the kind of stuff that starts early, early, early. And my children are not afraid of the world because I've empowered them. Right. If we empower them with choice, um, if we empower them with with knowledge, right. then it's not so scary. So much of what you have said about empowerment feels really important to me and validating that we're giving kids not just uh, scare stories about the dangers that are out there, but practical ways that they learn how to check in with themselves, you know, their literal gut feelings. And then, and then they have somebody that they go to when something happens who walks them through the steps of reporting a, a horrible interaction to the appropriate people so that if they are in those situations, they're not just a victim. They understand uh, that there are ways to move forward. I'm also thinking then of your older daughter. You know, it seems like we've had some pretty high profile things come up in the news around uh, date rape, uh, sexual harassment with teenagers. And I'm wondering, as you see kids enter that age where they're having romantic relationships or maybe sexual relationships, how are we, what are ways that we can keep them safe uh, as they're moving into that new stage of development? Well, so there are two parts to that. There are, um, you know, there's a difference between um, a male child and a female child. You know, because boys tend to be more physically powerful, teaching our boys to be respectful and um and and pay attention to what are the cues that are going on that they're getting from the girls around them there is this amazing very funny it's a youtube video about um consent and it's not appropriate for young children but it okay. is appropriate for teenagers um. i think and it's called consent and tea like tea the drink and it was put out by the british police as a message for um, for people to understand the idea of consent. And basically it talks about, you, you know, if you want to make some tea for someone and offer it to them and they want to drink it and they say, okay, then great. You've made a cup of tea and they've drank it and it's fine. Um, but, you know, someone who says, no, I don't really want tea, you don't pour it down their throat. And someone who is unconscious, unconscious 
cannot consent to right. wanting or not wanting tea, right? Somebody who's been drinking and is not conscious can't consent, right? So these are the basic, you know, because once they get into high school or even, you know, middle school for some children, this comes up. And so to understand, you know, when we mm -hmm. start using words like consent, they're, you know, their brains turn off. They're like, what? I don't even know what that means. But um, the, the reason there is an age of consent is because, you know, yeah. a 14-year-old is not old enough to really, truly right. understand the consequences to Right. having sex. They can't consent because they don't get it, right? Even though they think they can get it, right? So that's why there's an age of consent. But the second part is to check in with themselves because there are some 19-year-olds that are not ready to have sex. And that's fine. And so, um, and there, there are families and children who believe that you don't have sex until you're married. And that's, uh -huh. that is part of their family culture. And that is the right decision for them. So we're not going to get in the middle of that. What I would say is, if you have a child who is starting to engage in, you know, starting to date, you know, maybe kiss, that kind of stuff, you know, you talk to them about how they're feeling. You, you want to keep that dialogue going and be careful about the Disney princess, you know, way of thinking around it. There was a there was a song a long time ago, like many 1950s or something, you know, you're nobody till somebody loves you, which is insanity now mm -hmm. if we think about it. But that still is sort of pervasive in the back of our minds from that Disney princess kind of thinking. So, oh, the prince is going to come and he's good looking and he's going to sweep you off your feet and you're going to feel beautiful and, you know, you know, it's going to be rainbows and sunshine. And, you know, that's not really what it is. So if it, you know, if you think about if a, if a 14 year old girl comes home and says, oh, I, you know, I kissed this boy. So you don't want to be alarmed and all up in arms about it. You want to say, okay, what was that like for you? And did, was he respectful? Did he stop when you said stop? Or was that it? What was it like? How did it feel? Was it scary? Was it not scary? And go there with them. I see. Lean into the conversation because if you don't, yeah, they're, I... gonna, they're going to be afraid to talk about it. So my daughter had, a long time ago, had this experience where a boy kissed her. And later on, um, well, I only was with you because this other girl didn't want to be with me. Okay. Right. What a mean, what a mean little kid. But that's, that's the thinking of, you know, a 13, 14-year-old kid, right? So what I said, I leaned into that conversation with her. I said, ah, oh, that must have really hurt your feelings. I would, that would make me really, really upset. And she said, yeah, it really hurt oh. my feelings. Mm -hmm. And I said, so I want you to think about this. What if you had done more than kiss him? What if you had done more than kiss him? Then what would you feel like if he had said that? And she said, oh, right. my gosh. And the lights came on. And she said, Mom, I'm not ready for anything else. And I said, no, <laughs> no, you're not. And it was great because it, it, it allowed us to, to really, this is that piece about consequences, right? right? Let her feel them. Don't protect her. Don't go in and say, oh, my gosh, that boy is a terrible, I'm going to go call his mom. That's not going to help anything. That's going to ruin her socially at school. What you're going to do is you're going to say, okay, how did you feel? 
How did you feel? Give her back her power. And of course, our parental instinct is to want to be in there and, and fix that. And I'm not her parent. And even as you tell that story, my thought was, oh my goodness, somebody needs to do something about that child. And you're not saying that we're not doing anything. We're just saying that we're going to uh, let the kid in the relationship figure out what needs to be done and then do it. Right. So she never got together with that kid again. She was like, "Uh, no, I'm not interested in you. That seems especially important in those teenage years when part of what kids are learning to do developmentally is to separate themselves. And so even though it's painful to uh, be with them as they go through some some really hard and, and hurtful things, it, it's part of the stage of development. And as parents, it's part of our stage of development to learn how to parent differently. Yes. And you can always go back to what would you... What do you need from me? How can I help you? If you are completely at a loss, wow, that sounds really awful. How can I help you feel better? And so, and so, you know, obviously if something has actually happened, then you have to, you have to act on it, right? If, if my child had been sexually assaulted that night, that's a whole different ballgame. And, and then that is done. I know, I don't know about in your area, but we do have, um, you know, a place called Riverbridge here, which is they do SANE exams. I don't remember what the, you know, acronym stands for, but it's, um, it's for, you know, interviews and, and an actual physical exam and counseling all to take place in one place with people who are knowledgeable and sensitive to to sexual assault. You, as you said earlier, it is not crazy prevalent, okay? It happens. It absolutely does happen. And if it does happen, we need to address it and get help. At that point, we're not, we're not telling the right. child to go handle this on their own. We're stepping in. No, because it's not fair and it's not okay to have a child because yes. they can't. They don't have the tools to do that. And most of us parents don't really have the tools to do that. We need help. What would you say is a good first step for parents? Let's say the worst happens and they suspect or they know that their child has been sexually abused. So if you know for sure, then you are going to get in touch with, um, you know, your local Department of Human Services. And there should be, um, a, you know, a child protection um, you know, within human services, they will do an intake on that and immediately start the ball rolling on getting the child the support and help they need and the family. As parents, we don't have to know all the ins and outs of, um, of what to do about child sexual assault. We don't have to know all that. There are people who are well-versed and, um, and they're, and and the other thing, because, and I should say this because I think it's important to know, um, the kind of work I do, I am a trauma therapist. And so I talk to people all day long about terrible things that have happened to them. And what I would say is when I'm talking wow. to somebody about something that happened when they were a child, the resounding theme yeah. is they didn't believe me or I never got help, or, you know, nothing ever happened. 
So the important thing to do, you know, from, from, you know, I said something and nothing ever happened. And so, um, but the, but the, the most important thing that I want to, and it has every kind of, of, um, you know, mental Ah. health disorder that there could be. And if I were to choose one out of all of those things to have post-traumatic stress disorder, and the reason I would pick it is, yeah, it's not that I would hope that people are, are, you know, go through traumatic, you know, experiences, but that if somebody comes into my office and they are ready and willing and we can do it, we can get to the other side of the trauma. It is not a life sentence. We're going to try to do as much as we can to prevent, but if it does happen, you know, and I was actually trying to look up um, the statistics and the statistics are all over the place. And I don't know that statistics are necessarily accurate because there are so many that don't get reported. Yeah. We don't really know, but the truth is it's not like everybody out there is Mm -hmm. a sexual predator. The vast vast, vast, vast majority of people walking around on this planet are good people. And so, and so the key is to be open and communicative and honest. So we ended with sort of a doozy of a question there with what happens in worst case scenarios, steps to take. But I think that it's so important to remember that you, you pulled us right back, Erica, to uh, we're creating an environment that is open and honest from the get-go. And that's that's really the thing that's going to carry us through if something should happen. Uh, but it's also important parenting, just no matter what. So thank you so much for your time today. And it's always great to talk with you. On the next episode, I'm going to be doing a little mini episode thinking about faith communities and preventing sexual abuse. It's something that I've done quite a bit of uh, work in, just wanting to make sure that the communities that I serve in are safe. And so I'm going to share some ways that you can determine if a church that you're attending is safe, as well as some, you know, just for the community here at UCC Longmont, some of the things that we have in place. So thanks so much for listening. Until next time.